you're clapping earlier, but you haven't heard what I'm going to say yet. So that's exciting. Um, I am excited to be with you, and I'm excited especially uh, for what we're going to be doing here. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time in big, big chunks of Scripture, right? We had Samuel, we had Luke, we had Ecclesiastes. Um, we've had just quite a number of uh, really large narratives that we've looked at, which is great, and it's a lot of the way Scripture is written. So I'm excited to have some time to slow down and focus, right? Some weeks our passages will be three or four verses. Um, and so it's good just to kind of get a little bit of variety, you know, and, and pick it up. So I'm really excited. I'm excited to be with you. Um, if I haven't met you before, I'm Dan Barber. I'm a ruling elder here. Um, and again, welcome. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do uh, just thank you for this time to look at your word. We pray that it would be preached uh, by the power of your spirit that he would speak only that which is true and wise and pure and peaceable, full of wisdom and good fruits. Spirit, would you do that work that you have promised to do, to take from the knowledge and the love and the wisdom of the Father and impart it to us? And would we receive that word as you implant it, because it is able to save our souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been sharing stories in community group, our community group, um, which is taking a break for the summer. Um, we just finished all of our stories. Each uh, person got an hour to share. So you got to share a lot about yourself. It was a lot of fun. But inevitably, you have to leave stories out, right? I mean, it's still only an hour and you've got a whole lifetime. One of the stories that I left out of mine uh, of my sharing time was something in our house called the meatball story. Um, and the meatball story, so my wife and I got engaged February 24, uh, February 20, February 14th, 2006. And uh, we were married April 22nd of that year. So 62 days, it was a large wedding, like over 500 people. We had five wedding showers in that time. Um, <laughs> because we were both in our 30s when we got married. And so we had a lot of relationships. We were in college and singles ministry. So we just had a ton of relationships, right? We lived in a different city than where our family was. So there was all kinds of travel. And um, we had to squeeze our engagement pictures in there, right? So first weekend in April, we went to go take our engagement pictures at the Botanical Gardens. And um, it doesn't look like this now, um, praise the Lord, but I have really bad seasonal allergies like really bad, like my doctor in Birmingham was like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you, shouldn't have, you should be in a bubble, you're like a nine, right? Like so, um, I've been doing shots and it's been helping a little bit, um, not shots, but drops. Um, and it's, it's helping a little bit, you know, we'll see. But uh, so, you know, first weekend in April, taking, uh, taking engagement photos at the botanical gardens in Birmingham, right? The pollen count was high and I was really nervous about it. Uh, but the Lord was gracious and it rained that day, which not only cleared out the pollen, but also the people. And so we were able to get in there. We didn't have to wait for anything, right? We, we took our pictures. We got every part of the, the gardens that we wanted. 
Um, it wasn't too hot. It was just, fan I was really worried, but it was fantastic. And I was like, yes, God is smiling upon me. He is being gracious and loving. This is such a great day. And on the way out, I mean, tell you how good a day it was. On the way out, I was like, man, I really need something to drink. I wish I had a Coke. And there was a Coke machine. And I went to my wallet and I didn't have any cash. And, you know, this is back before they had card readers on a lot of the vending machines. And so I was like, oh, I don't have any cash. And I banged my arm on it and a Coke popped out. And I was like, yes, yes, this is the best day ever. And uh, if you guys, uh, any of you have golfed before, you know, the first weekend in April is also Masters weekend. And so um, April said, why don't you go home? We had something else to do that night. Why don't you go home? Watch the Masters, just relax, right? It's gonna be great. I was like, yes, this is great. So I go in, I pop out, I, get, I, I take off my nice clothes. I get some meatballs from a shower that we had just had, these Swedish meatballs, and I pile them in a bowl, I microwave them, and I sit down, I have the Masters on, I'm ready to go, and I take a bite, and the meatball is so hot that it burns my mouth, my tongue, my lips, etc. And I and I react, and in reacting, the giant heap of meatballs that I had piled starts to fall on me and it starts burning my legs and I jump up and the meatballs go everywhere, right? The meatballs are hitting the walls. There are literal sauce trails like little golf balls that are going across my base carpet and it's horrible, right? And I call April up and I'm like, God hates me. He is against me. I don't know what's happening to myself, right? I tell you that story because it illustrates like how fast our perspective on a relationship with God can change, right? Because we, we tend to think about God in the way that our circumstances are going around us. We tend to say, hey, things are going well, God must be happy with me. Or things are going poorly, God must be angry with me, right? Uh, what do we do when it's not just about meatballs, when it's something bigger, right? When it's a day or a decision, maybe it's something about your career that hasn't gone right. Maybe it's something with your family or your friends. Um, I've shared before about a number of different losses in my life. Um, you'll probably hear some more of them as they come up this summer, but we all have things like that. And in those moments that are much harder than that moment was, right? Where do we turn? Where do we go? What's our hope? Is God really for us? Is he really in control? Is he gonna do what he promised to do? Remember those questions we asked a few months ago from Paul Tripp? When we're asking those questions, we're asking the questions that the Thessalonian church was asking Paul. Because they had experienced some stuff and it was challenging their whole lives. And so I'm really excited to go through this series with us. Um, we're gonna look at today why is Paul writing? I've already given you a little hint. Why is Paul writing? Uh, and then secondly, what does he say? What are some big themes of the book? And then we'll dive in um, to the book in the coming weeks. But first of all, why is Paul writing? So um, verse one says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Um, Grace to you and peace is a familiar greeting. You guys uh, probably have seen this in Paul's letters before. It's a combination of a classic Greek greeting, which would be like greetings, um, 
but slightly changed. And then the Hebrew idea of peace, right? Shalom. Uh, so it should give you a little bit of an idea what Thessalon uh, Thessalonica was like. It's got a Greek peace and a Jewish peace. We're going to talk about that. But I've given you a really, really fun map. Um, I'm excited about this map. Uh, so down here, you follow, I, I wanted to read through. So this, what I'm going to walk you through is the story of how Paul got here, right? What it, in order to kind of understand what's happening, you need to understand what's been going on before the letter's written. And so it, we, instead of reading through the entire book uh, of Acts from Acts chapter 15 to Acts 17, I'm just going to summarize it for us really quick. But Paul starts down here by my finger. So look up here. See where my finger is right down here? He starts down here, it's off the map, in Antioch, and this is his second missionary journey. So Paul's done one little trip, and he's going to go back, and he's going to do a second trip. And he starts off in Antioch, and he comes to Iconium, which you can see the word icon right there. That's, that's truncated, right? So that's Iconium. And he picks up Timothy. Now, Paul is traveling with a guy named Silas. Silas and Silvanus are the same person. It's kind of like saying uh, Matt versus Matthew, right? So Sylvanus is his formal name. So Paul and Silas pick up Timothy. Timothy has a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. So he's really, really suited for the ministry that Paul's going to try and do, which Paul, as you know, probably, because you've heard the stories before, he goes into the synagogue and preaches for a number of weeks first, and then he goes and ministers to the Greeks in that city. That's kind of his practice. So he's here, and he says, I want to go to Asia. So Paul, Timothy, and Silas set off for Asia, but the Spirit doesn't let them go there. And we don't know what that means. It just means that they, they didn't find an open door for their ministry. So he says, let's go up to Bithynia, right, which is right here at the top. But he can't get in there either. And he's like, I don't know what's happening, so I'm going to go over to Troas, which is all the way over here on the coast, right, big deviation. And in Troas, he has a vision, and this is in Acts chapter 16, that the gospel is going to come to Macedonia, right? Which is over here across the sea. And so he gets on a boat and he goes over to Macedonia. He lands at Neapolis and he goes to Philippi. And in Philippi, he meets a woman from Asia named Lydia. How ironic, right? She's from Asia where he wanted to go, but she lives in Philippi. And Lydia becomes a Christian along with her household. It's awesome. And then he gets thrown in jail, right? So the Philippian jailer story, right? That happens right before we come to the Thessalonians. So he gets thrown in jail. He gets out um, and he passes through Apollonia and Amphipolis and he comes to Thessalonica. Thessalonica, um, actually in Acts 16, it says that Philippi was a leading city. If Philippi was a leading city, Thessalonica was the leading city. It is a metropolis. It is a cosmopolitan area, some 100,000 to 200,000 people. Uh, it is both a port city and on the single most important road in the Eastern Roman Empire called the Ignatian Way. You can see it written right here on your map and you can follow the dotted line. It is the east-west route to get to Rome from the outer reaches of the empire. One of the things that the Roman Empire did that they're famous for, right, is building infrastructure. 
So Paul is actually traveling along the Ignatian Way after he lands, and that's kind of his ministry thing. And he comes to Thessalonica, this cultural melting pot, right, that has a bunch of Jewish people and it has a bunch of Greek people. Uh, Amongst other things, there are Egyptian deities, there are Greco-Roman deities, there's a pantheon, um, there's all kinds of stuff there. And then there's a Jewish contingent as well. And in Acts 17, it says that some people in the synagogue believed, as well as did a lot of the Greek-speaking kind of pseudo-Jewish people called God-fearers, people who are not ethnically Jewish, and then a number of leading women in the city. So the city was ruled by what's called politarchs. So they were politically appointed people they ruled, and a number of those had come to faith. And that really upset the Jews, uh, not just because of that, but because Paul was preaching someone that they didn't know. And so the Jews, not the Greeks, the Greeks were okay with this other God, but the Jews were really upset that Paul was preaching this stuff. And so they drag him out there and they say in Acts 17, 4, these people have turned the world upside down and they're preaching that there's some other king other than Caesar. And Thessalonica being a free colony of Rome who is under Caesar's patronage, that's not a very good thing to say, is it? Right? You don't want to be against Caesar. That's, that's a pretty big deal. And so they, Paul and Timothy and Silas escape, and they go down to Berea, which is right over here. And it's a big, it's a big departure for him because he has to leave the Ignatian Way. We know from Romans, Paul actually wanted for a long time to go down the Ignatian Way cross the sea over to another road called the Appian Way to get to Rome and eventually go to Spain. This is what Paul's been wanting to do. This is his vision. But he can't do it because the persecution that arises in Thessalonica is really intense. How intense is it? Imagine that you heard somebody in Los Angeles was saying some stuff that you didn't like. And so you decided you were going to take two days off of work You're going to pack up your car and you're going to go down there just so you can go and protest and harass that person. It's two days from Thessalonica to Berea. Two days. And the Bereans are coming to faith, but the Jews in Thessalonica hear about it and they're so upset that they leave their jobs and they go down there just to persecute Paul more. It's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. And so Paul, instead of just taking a little deviation off the road, he goes all the way down here to Athens, right? And the irony of the story isn't just that things aren't going well for for the Thessalonians, right? Like the Thessalonians are kind of like, yeah, you know, I mean, you told us Jesus was great, Jesus is this, and Jesus is going to save us, and you know, all these things, and now we're being persecuted. But the irony is that things aren't going great for Paul either right? He's like, he's had this whole plan, but now here he is down in Athens by himself because everybody's chasing him. He's like, what's going on, right? Things have gone awry in the plan. Where do we go? What do we do? And so we see in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, the reason Paul is writing is he says, now may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He's been forced out. He's only been there about two to three months. He stayed in Corinth 18 months and Ephesus two years. Like that's what he wants to do. He wants to stay in a place 
build the church, establish it, set up the church government, right? Get the elders ready to go and make it to where they can sustain themselves over the long haul. And he didn't get to do that in Thessalonica. So he wants to come back to them, but he doesn't know if he's going to be able to. So he's, he's gotten a report from Timothy and he's going to answer them back and tell them a lot of, a lot of different things. But that's why he's writing. So then what does he say? Well, he's going to say two things uh, in verses 12 and 13. He says, May the Lord abound, uh, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And this is a little bit of a summary um, of what he's talking about in the first three chapters of the book. And really the book as a whole, but he's talking about two things. The first is that there's an unfinished work. There's an unfinished work in the church in Thessalonica. And that unfinished work is the outflow, the outworking of love. Um, Eleven times in the book, Paul says, you yourselves know, or you already know. He spent two to three months with them. He's saying, you guys already know this. You already know da-da-da-da-da. You already know this. You already know Jesus is coming. You already know these things. You already know how to love other people. You already know about generosity. But they don't fully know. Let me say it another way. Belief has not yet fully become practice. Belief has not yet fully become practice. And so he's partly writing to him to say, you've started down the right path and I've heard about your faith uh, and, and I know you're doing great things, but there's still more for you to do. There's still more to learn because you're still just learning what it means to love God and to love others. And there's still a lot of ways that you can abound in that. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to preach through this for us, because it fits where we are as a church, right? We've just been established as our own church. We've been uh, worshiping together for eight years, not all of us that amount of time. But we've still got a long way to go. And for all of us, there are places in our life where belief has not yet worked itself out fully in practice. And so we're going to look at what does that look like? What does it look to be living, to live befittingly as God's people? What should we look like in holiness and honor, right? How does that look? And in, in what are the different ways that we can do that? But all of that is an outflow of the love that's been poured out into our hearts through Christ Jesus. And he's going to make that clear. And besides that, Paul is super affectionate for this. So this book is very early in Paul's ministry. Um, the only book that would be written before this would be Galatians, and it'd be only a year or two ahead of it. So this was written in around 49 AD. Um, and um, another kind of characteristic of the book is the most often used term to address the church is brothers. Brothers and sisters, it's very famili uh, familial, familial, familial. It's very affectionate. He talks, Paul talks about himself as a nursing mother who is happy to share his whole life with them, not just the gospel, but, the, but his whole life he shared with them. And now his friends, 
his family are suffering. Right? It's not like this book isn't as much Paul the theologian as it is Paul the pastor. Right? It's, it's a father caring for his children, and it's so beautiful and so encouraging. And so, again, that's a place where I really wanted us to spend some time in sitting, sitting in that. Um, and so that goes into number two. The second thing that is the big theme of the book is comfort. Uh, comfort. Because the Thessalonians are suffering. And uh, the first time I stood up here and preached to Fountain Square, some of you will remember this, not, uh, not many of you probably, because I don't know that you were there, was for the funeral of Azalea Friesen. Um, and the Friesens were in our community group at Redeemer for many years. Uh, if you didn't know Leah, um, Leah was stillborn. And no matter what you do, whether it's a parent or a seminary-trained professional, there's nothing that prepares you for that. And as I was trying to minister to the Friesens and trying to think about what I was going to preach, I thought about, what can I say, right? I don't want to say something trite or flippant or meaningless, right? I want to say something meaningful and profound and, and something that would bring true, a true sense of comfort, right? And that's where Paul is. He wants to tell them what will really truly be comforting to them and what they say is, Paul, what we really want you to do is come back. Paul, we, we, it would be a great comfort to us to come back. And Paul actually says, it's, it's ironic. It's not my coming that should be your comfort. It's the coming of Jesus. Jesus' second coming is the single biggest theme of the whole book. Um, it, it encapsulates... Um, Every chapter, it's the only book of the Bible where every chapter mentions the second coming of Jesus. And it does so in a different way in each of the five instances. And we're going to look at that. But think about that. Think about that for a second. Paul wants to comfort, he wants to comfort his brothers and his sisters. But he says, it's not about me returning, it's about Jesus returning. Even here when he says, he returns with all of his saints. What does that mean? And how good of a comfort is that? We're going to talk about that. So those are the two things that he says, um, the two kind of overarching themes. There are other themes like discipleship and work and things like that that we'll look at along the way, but those are the two big things. So what does that mean for us? How do we pull this together in something that we can uh, take home with us today. Uh, Pat talked about this series a while ago that he watched called Alone, right? It's a survival reality show. Um, I started watching it this spring. It's on the History Channel, and they put 10 people um, out geographically isolated, right? And they have to survive. And I like to fancy myself a survival pretender. Um, we go camping in our pop-up trailer, right? It's, it's, uh, I try and start a fire without matches, you know, and pretend that I'm good at it and could do it at any moment's notice, um, which is not true, right? 
So imagine if the alone producer said, we're going to put you in the harshest place in the world, Dan, and you've got to live and you can only take 10 things with you. I'd be like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right? Like, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, but what if they came back to me and said, okay, we know, Dan, you don't have any survival skills. We know you don't really have the tools. We know you don't have the knowledge. Um, but we're going to provide all those things for you, and uh, you're going to stay out there 45 days, and at the end, you're going to get a million bucks, which is their price. Would I consider doing it? Maybe. Um, and if I did it, how much differently do you think the experience would be knowing what the outcome was at the end? It'd be really different, wouldn't it? Is you got to ask yourself, why, why does Paul write with such an emphasis on what happens at the end? Why is he telling us what happens out here when he's trying to comfort us today? And it's because of this. It's a phrase that's meant a lot to me over the years. Um, you'll hear it often. And it's future promise shapes present practice. Future promise shapes present practice. You know, when Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth, that's not like just a nice saying. It's literally a covenant promise that everything that he has, he will share with you one day. How does that change? How does that change everything we scramble for in our lives? How should it change it? That's a question I've been asking myself for a lot of years. Right? Future promise shapes present practice. John Piper talks about it like this. I'm paraphrasing a few words in here, but it's mostly the same. He says, when you know the truth about what happens to you, and you believe it, and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free. Free from the short and shallow pleasures of sin and free to show the sacrificial love of Christ that causes people to give glory to our Father in heaven. And that's what I want for us. That's what I want for myself, right? And as we embark together over the summer and the coming years, that we would learn to abound more and more in love and holiness. Because, yes, it's pleasing to God, but because... It's a way that we flourish. It's how we thrive. It's how we live as he intended. And as we do that, the watching world will be engaged and brought in and say, what a fantastic Jesus this Jesus is. That's what I want for us. And hopefully we'll talk about that this summer. Let's pray. Father, we do just ask that that you would cause us to abound more and more in love. We pray, Father, that you would be shown forth in us, that you would bring belief into practice, that you would teach us to hope in your coming beyond all things, that the watching world would see it and they would know you, they would come to love you, even as we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.